0: Paid at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Yasmin Abutaleb, a health policy writer for the Washington Post, and Damien Poletta, the Post's economics editor, have written Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic That Changed History, a new book from HarperCollins. It's based on hundreds of interviews that provide a bird's eye view of what happened at the White House. And co-author Damien Pelletta joins me now. Welcome to our show.
1: Oh, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much.
0: What happened seems to run on two tracks. One is the story of the White House and and government agencies trying to address a deadly pandemic while also trying to please President Trump. And the other follows the advance of COVID-19 through the American population. Didn't many people understand that there was a crisis early on?
1: No, actually, in fact, President Trump thought it was a public relations crisis. His real um, focus initially was on trying to get the stock market to go back up. It was it kind of entered a free fall in late February, and he thought it was because people were panicking. And so he sent out Larry Kudlow and others to do whatever they could to make people feel like this was all going to disappear. So while they were focused on the kind of public relations crisis, there were others inside the White House like, Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks who realized that this was becoming, you know, kind of a snowballing public health nightmare. And they tried to get, you know, more people to pay attention to what might be required if, the, you know, there were hospitals all over the country that were going to be overrun with sick patients. So there were two battles being fought simultaneously, unfortunately, not by the same people. And often they were in conflict with each other.
0: Oh, you report that on January 18th, Scott Gottlieb, who was Then the Commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration texted Joe Grogan at the Domestic Policy Council to warn him about the virus in Wuhan, and Grogan took it seriously. But then Grogan questioned Alex Azar, uh, then the the Secretary of Health and Human uh, Services, Robert Redfield, then the Director of the Centers for Disease Control, and and Anthony Fauci. Uh, And wasn't he told everything is taken care of, the CDC is remedying the situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think when we look back over the course of our reporting for this book, there were so many missed opportunities in January and February. And I mean, obviously at the time that you mentioned January 18th, I think there were no known cases of this virus in the U.S. So, you know, actually three days earlier, President Trump signed this trade deal with China, and he didn't want any kind of bad news to cast a shadow on that. So there was a lot of people in the White House who were pushing back on any concern, but as you mentioned, Scott Gottlieb did text Joe Grogan, who was inside the White House, and said, you know, I'm seeing these reports out of China. This is actually quite concerning. You guys need to start focusing on that. At the time, Alex Azar, who was the head of the Department of Health and Human Services, was really on the outs with President Mm -hmm. Trump. President Trump was really upset with Azar for trying to push a ban on vaping and flavored cigarettes flavored e-cigarettes. So, you know, when you have this, the head of HHS, who no one in the White House likes, trying to raise concerns about this pandemic that so far has infected no one, it just leads to a really dysfunctional situation out of the gate. And unfortunately, because these folks really didn't like each other, in some cases they hated each other in February, in January and February, it just made it all the hard, all that much harder for them to have an honest conversation with each other about what was happening.
0: And on January 28th, Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger warned Donald Trump that uh, he could be facing the deadliest pandemic since the 1918 flu. But um, Gottlieb had already left the administration, and Grogan was soon to, to resign. So did he have any allies? When he started cool. wearing a mask to work, wasn't he considered an alarmist and frozen <laughs> out of decision making?
1: Absolutely. People thought he looked like an alien. I mean, he he wasn't wearing one of those simple masks you see on the street now. He was wearing, you know, kind of full headgear. And what's interesting about Pottinger is he is a former Wall Street Journal reporter, as am I, actually. And he had lived in China during the SARS outbreak, so he knew about government misinformation. He knew about how deadly and dangerous these, you know, respiratory viruses could be. So when he kind of went into the Oval Office that day and warned the president that this could quickly become a huge, you know, crisis of his presidency, he was being deadly serious. I think the president couldn't believe it because, um, you know, like I said, there was only a few confirmed cases in the U.S. at the time, in part because they weren't really testing anybody. But, you know, Ponger was deadly serious, but as you also mentioned. This was the beginning of kind of a revolving door of personnel at yeah. the White House. Mul- Mulvaney was about to be ousted. Grogan was about to be ousted. And That made it even harder for them to coordinate a response.
0: And uh, uh, many left, and more would soon leave. And you say that what was left was a mix of family members, twenty-somethings, former lobbyists, hangers-on, uh, fourth-stringers, former lobbyists, and sycophants.
1: Right. I mean. Sounds like so a good is-
0: group. <laughs> yeah, to
1: lead the response to the biggest crisis huh. in, in uh, 50 years. You know, we, uh, w- the issue was this is the fourth year of the Trump presidency, and so a lot of the people who had come in with a lot of bipartisan support and public support, you know, Jim Mattis, even Rex Tillerson, they were long gone by now. You know, the president was on his, like, fifth chief of staff. He'd already burned through four national security advisors. So this was kind of the, you know, the, the real people who, who had never wanted to tell the president anything was wrong. I mean, the shoe shiners, if you will, the people that just wanted to make him happy all the time.
0: And you and so, say that uh, many of them were just focused on their own survival.
1: Yeah, I mean, because when, like we mentioned with Azar trying to, you know, survive and repair his reputation after the president erupted at him over vaping, these people were always like within two inches of getting fired, and the president loved kind of dangling that over their heads. And so when there's so much focus on self-preservation, there's just not enough focus on doing what's right for the country, and I think that really delayed the response tremendously.
0: So he was fighting, Azar was fighting a losing battle here. Didn't the uh, CDC botch the initial test?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, so they started designing a test in February and they nearly got it right. I mean, you know, this like I said, this is a new virus. No one had ever seen it before. They, they almost did have a test designed correctly, um, but they, there, was a, there was like this one minor mistake in it that started creating false positives. And it took weeks and weeks for them to sort it out. And in fact, the CDC wasn't that transparent about the mistakes they had with the test, which made it even harder For them to acknowledge that they needed to make major changes so as you know weeks turned into almost a month you had thousands and thousands of airplanes arriving from europe in march or sorry in february bringing tens of thousands of people who were sick Mm. and by the time they finally got the tests corrected it was too late you know the virus was everywhere and by mid-march you know it was sort of chaotic and really devastating
0: you report that uh In two of the three labs, the CDC wasn't following standard operating procedure. And Azar discovered that the CDC had put together the test in the same lab where it was running the test on live virus samples. Wasn't that a violation of manufacturing practices?
1: It was kind of a violation of everything. And I think you see the CDC is still under a lot of heat right now. For their response to the the crisis and we expect there to be a lot more reporting on the cdc i mean i guess the only thing i can say in the cdc's defense is they were trying to move heaven and earth to do this but you know an agency like that can't afford to make a mistake like this you know they they have to have a pristine reputation and unfortunately this was the first of many mistakes at the cdc Um, but it really got them off on the wrong foot because the american public was starting to wonder whether they could trust an agency like that with a task as big as this.
0: And the CDC's failures can't be blamed on Trump, can they?
1: Oh, no, not at all. Um, I think, you know, there was a lot of sort of institutional issues that the CDC was dealing with at the time. But at the same time, when you have the president breathing down the agency's neck, like he was, and then he would, you know, who would ultimately train his guns on the FDA when it came to approving the vaccine. So um, I think that just made it harder for a lot of people to separate out decisions that were being made in the public interest and with public health at the forefront and then kind of with a political motivation. So I think when the president realized that the CDC was weak and that, you know, Dr. Redfield didn't command the respect of a lot of his peers, he kind of decided that was an opportunity for him to pounce and, you know, that made things a lot worse in the second half of 2020.
0: You opened the book with Dr. Fauci in his NIH office in August 2020 in his underwear, wondering whether the white powder that exploded from an envelope that he just opened had covered his face and his clothes uh, and exposed him to anthrax, ricin, or was just a hoax. So how does that relate to the story you're telling here?
1: Thanks so much for asking. You know, I mean, we wrote the book mostly chronologically, you know, running from January through the election. But we wanted, we felt it was important to start the book, you know, with this scene from August, which is, you know, almost two-thirds of the way through the year, where the where you have this you know globally recognizable figure, Anthony Fauci, then a 79-year-old, you know, five-foot-seven guy from Brooklyn. Standing in his underwear. And actually, as the the section goes on, he's standing naked in essentially like a kiddie bathtub in the office, decontaminating his body.
0: He was told to take off his clothes.
1: Exactly. He was told to strip naked. And, And at the time, they didn't know if this was like if he would be dead in a few hours. I mean, if this was ricin, he was a goner. There's no cure. And so what we wanted this section of the book to do is to send a signal to readers that, you know, you thought 2020 was crazy. You thought you knew what would happen. You have no idea how scary it got. You have no idea how dangerous it was, how, you know, kind of the forces of evil were unleashed on some of these people and what really happened. I mean, obviously Fauci was, you know, on TV quite often, as was the president. And we kind of got to hear real time what these people thought about, you know, hydroxychloroquine or vaccines or masks. But we really needed, we felt, to tell the story in this book of what happened behind the scenes, what happened to them at the coffee table, you know, when they were talking to their spouses or their kids, what the toll that this took on them. And so we thought that opening the book with that section that you described was a way for us to telegraph to readers, you know, buckle up. There's a lot more where that came. Well,
0: a lot of uh, the people who seem to be disagreeing with the president were receiving death threats. He must have wondered whether... That's what was happening here. Um, a lot of time was spent at the highest levels of government on what to do about the Americans stuck on the Diamond Princess and other cruise ships. Was that an overreaction because there were just 437 Americans on the cruise ship while 328 million Americans were at risk at home?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that's one of those things. So this is an early February. It was a cruise ship floating off the coast of Japan. And at the time, you know, this is kind of one of Trump's weaknesses was that he was just so fixated on what was on television and responding to what was on television. And so when there was all all this sorry, when there was all this coverage of the Diamond Princess, he decided to like unleash his chief of staff, everyone in the White House to focus on the Diamond Princess. And so, you know, they didn't know what to do in their defense. No one knew what to do. Um, But at the same time, there were all these airplanes, like I said, arriving in the United States with all these sick passengers. So they spent weeks focusing on this cruise ship and other cruise ships. But um, they had, they just did not you know, recognize that the cruise ships, this is just a, such a small fraction of people who quite frankly were kind of quarantined already. They were stuck on the ship. There were all these other people entering the United States sick. Many of them without symptoms didn't know they were sick. And those were the ones that kind of helped spread the virus across the United States, particularly in the spring.
0: Well, wasn't Trump furious with Alex Azar about the decision to fly back 14 infected Americans from the Diamond Princess because it raised the U.S. case count from 14 to 28? He told Azar, this doubles my numbers overnight. These people never should have been brought back here.
1: Yeah, and they and called for several people to be fired as a result of it, um, including someone who was on the ground in Japan. Who you know, these were elderly people. The average age of cruise ship passengers was eighty at the time, and. And so this person at the State Department made the decision on the fly that we have to get these people home. And so the president wanted that, guy fired. The president was fixated, like I said, on television and on two numbers that he would see on his TV screen, the stock market, which was going down, and the U.S. case count, which was going up. So when that U.S. case count went from 14 to 28, you know, which, it, which was, you know, a nanosecond of increase, you know, several months later. But when he saw that, he thought it would lead to the stock market going down more and wanted to just punish whoever he could to send a signal, essentially to keep everyone out of the United States. And, and that's why he came up with some really creative and, quite frankly, kind of bonkers ideas about what to do with some of these cruise ship passengers, you know, not to try to take care of them and to make sure that they were take you know, had good health care but because he just didn't want them stepping foot on U.S. soil because that would make his case count go up.
0: My guess is Damian Paletta, who is the co-author with Yasmin Abutaleb of Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History, published by HarperCollins. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, your, your specialty is economics, and you've been kind of hinting at the key tensions throughout the whole pandemic that between the public health experts and the drive to open the economy, to put the economy first. What have you learned about the tensions between these two groups, particularly when Vice President Pence took over running the task force in the White House?
1: You know, the tensions were tremendous. When Yasmin and I started this book, it was in April of 2020. Um, at the time, you know, the stock market was starting its recovery because the Federal Reserve had unleashed essentially trillions of dollars of support to backstop, you know, every company. And the, the Congress had already passed the stimulus bill. So there was this, you know, sense, and I was, at the time also the president was, essentially ordering states to reopen, no matter what the health consequences of that were. Yasmin and I knew that there was going to be a lot of political reporting about the, the Trump presidency in his final year, but we thought we had a really unique vantage point to tell the inside story that showed the kind of health and economic pressures. And so, for example, on March 11th, when there was this big meeting in the Oval Office about stopping um, flights from Europe, the president had already stopped some flights from China, but. There was this, you know, Pottinger and others inside the White House wanted to also stop flights from Europe. And, and um, Steve Mnuchin, who at the time was the Treasury Secretary, warned that if you did that, the economic consequences could be severe and could even lead to something like another Great Depression. So even the, even was,
0: though pretty much the spread of, the, of COVID-19 came from people coming here from Europe, not from China.
1: Exactly. I mean, most of the people, I think at one point.
0: It was Italy they, mostly.
1: Yeah, when they studied 40 states in the United States, like 37 of them had the virus seeded from Europe. So it was almost the impact from people from coming straight from China was almost negligible at the time. But I think the president was just obsessed with this image going into the election that he was the, you know, champion of the economy. He had cut taxes. He had done this China deal, and he was just mortified at the idea that the stock market could go down under his watch. Also in April 2020, when we started reporting the book, you know, 20 million Americans lost their jobs. So there was a lot going on at the time. Um, And so, you know, that tension just remained, and it still remains to this day a big part the government's response.
0: Not just the federal government, but we're seeing it on the state and even local levels as well. Um, When the Dow dropped, Larry Kutlow was quick to get on the news shows to claim the virus is contained. Um, Was he just simply lying or was he unaware of the reality of the situation?
1: Well, you know, I mean, that's a great question. I I think what you'd have to I think to be generous to him, you'd call it happy talk, you know. I mean, I think the president believes the stock market is sort of a reflection of our, uh, uh, you know, psychology as a country. And if we're optimistic, the stock market goes up. And if we're depressed or scared, it goes down. So Larry Kudlow was trying to give us kind of a a punch on the arm to say, hey, it's all going to be okay." I mean, obviously what he was saying was completely false and was, you know, you know, I think a lot of people would say he was lying. He was, didn't know what he was talking about, obviously. So um, and it, as it became clear he didn't know what he was talking about, I think he lost a ton of credibility and people stopped listening to what the president said about the economy as well, because it was clear that they were just making things up on the fly.
0: And then Vice President Mike Pence wrote in a Wall Street Journal op-ed in June 2020 that there isn't a coronavirus second wave. But he kept on changing his message, didn't he? Yeah,
1: he did. And it's interesting. You know, we found Pence to be a very complicated character in our book. Pence and Burks, I think, were the hardest for us to really wrap our heads around. Because, you know, he he, was—Vice President Pence did do a lot to help the doctors and the scientists um, have their voices heard. You know, I think he's dismissed a little bit too easily. He did let Burks and Fauci, you know, weigh in at these meetings. um, And he he also helped Burks kind of hopscotch around the country and talk to governor's offices when she felt like she was being kind of muzzled in Washington. But at the same time, you know, when it came to things like this op ed that ran in The Wall Street Journal on June 11th, You know, he made these huge mistakes that really undercut him and were easily disproven, um, sometimes in a matter of days. And so I I think, you know, while he did try to distance himself from the president a bit in his kind of behind-the-scenes work, he was just incapable of separating himself from the president's happy talk. And and when he wrote that op-ed, the second wave had, had unfortunately just begun. And, you know, it became clearer and clearer to many Americans that the White House was, you know, just putting false information out there. And that that led to the country splintering even more as we headed into the election when people didn't know who they could believe.
0: And every time they made an announcement like uh, it'll be over this spring, it'll be over this fall, it'll be over by Election Day, uh, the the news on TV (laughs) tended to be, well, uh, there's actually been an explosion Of of uh, of cases. So, um, were they aware of the fact that the reality was undermining their message, or did they just think that, well, we're talking to our base and they'll believe us no matter what?
1: You know, that's such a great question. Um, I I think as we got into July, August, September, there was just so much more attention put on the base.
0: your dog was obviously very upset yeah. as well. My
1: dog was my companion for the book. Um, there was so much more attention put on the base. In July of, of 2020, there was a meeting in the Oval Office with President Trump and um, Jason Miller and some of his advisors. And at the time they, they actually told him, listen, the base supports wearing masks. You should have people wear masks. and You'll look strong if you call for that. It's kind of almost like a father figure. And... Um, Unfortunately, Mark Meadows walked in the room and said, "No, no, your hardcore base will never support that." And uh, you know, the president agreed with them, and he, the president refused to support mass. I'm so sorry about this. And then, um, uh, when the president refused to endorse the idea of mass, millions of his supporters believed him. And that's what set us up for this terrible third wave going into the fall because, we, as we know, masks do prevent the spread of the virus. And um, when millions and millions of people don't wear them, as many people don't wear them now, it just makes it impossible to stop it.
0: Well, there was, wasn't there even a plan to provide masks to every American?
1: Yes, and this is one of the stories in our book that... Yeah, know, I never heard almost, this one before. <laughs> it almost seems like something from a Larry David skit. I mean, but we felt like we had to include it almost for historical reasons so people could learn. So this was, you know, almost, this was kind of early, like in March or April, and they had amazingly convinced the um, manufacturers of like underwear companies, you know, like Hanes and Jockey, to create 600 million masks. And this is a time when there was a real mask shortage. And so these companies were gonna create 600 million masks and then they were gonna use the US Postal Service to mail two masks to every American. You, know, you didn't have to order them. There was no like online thing. They were just gonna mail every person two masks. And it, the idea was if everyone had two masks, then there would be no stigma. It wouldn't be such a big deal. And then if we could kind of snuff this thing out in you know, the spring, then we could kind of move on and it would be over. And so they had a meeting in the, in the Situation Room in the basement of the White House where they, had, they were going to kind of show these masks to each other. And Alex Azar put him at one of the masks on his face to show people what he looked like. I mean, this is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. This is kind of a big deal. And people started snickering. I mean, it was almost like a junior high school locker room environment. People started snickering. One person said it looked like he was wearing a jockstrap on his face. And another person said it looked like he was wearing a training bra. And because they were so fixated on, like, appearances, the whole thing got shelved. And you know the masks were not distributed, um, and you know the rest, unfortunately, is history. But and, and didn't Mark
0: Meadows that. think that the base would revolt if they told yeah. everybody oh, yeah. to wear a mask?
1: Yeah, Meadows thought that there was this kind of libertarian revolt that would occur, which, you know, maybe he was right, but, you know, that if the government sent people masks, it would be like just this huge government intervention in people's freedoms. And so I think as he started to kind of flex his muscle a little bit, you had people like Fauci who just couldn't believe that the government wouldn't be trying to do things for people that would um, kind of make them safer. And so that was really when, I think, in, in kind of April. When that split started really getting worse inside the situation room between Fauci on one side and like Meadows on the other. And it got worse and worse as the
0: year went on. Well, Burks seemed to be uh, handling the president well for a while, and then she disappeared.
1: Yeah, you know, like I said, she, she is such an interesting character for, for us. She really gets vilified now. Um, you know, she made a very strategic decision early on to hold her fire when it came to President Trump's, you know, more bizarre statements. She she even at times would kind of flatter him in her public comments, talking about how his, um, you know, he's got this great scientific mind or he really mm-hmm. understands the data. And, you know, the president at the time loved Um, any kind of public flattery. So she was able to kind of use that to have a tremendous amount of influence. And there were times when it worked brilliantly for her. At the end of March, it was Burks who met with the president in the yellow oval room which you know to be i had never even heard of before it's on the second floor of the white house and it was on a saturday night and the president was all depressed because a hospital in queens that he kind of grew up near was getting just overrun by the virus and burke said you know and i think at the time one of the president's closest friends was in a coma from the virus stanley Chera. and so the Burks told him listen every hospital in the country is going to be like the hospital in queens if you push states to open up, and she was able to convince him to stay closed. Um, Now, she was almost too smooth. I think he soon realized, you know, when some of his more conservative advisors said, listen, you know, you gotta, you got to stop listening to Burks and Fauci. They're just getting you to, you know, do all these things that the base hates. So he started to resent her and kind of put her out in the cold. Fauci was protected because he was a um, career civil servant. He could not be fired that easily by the president. But Burks was a political appointee. She could be fired, so she had to tread more carefully. And when the president turned on her and she had already kind of annoyed People like Nancy Pelosi, who thought that, you know, Burks had done too much to cozy herself up to Trump. She was like a woman without an island. She didn't really have anyone to turn to. And that made her situation a lot more precarious as the year went
0: on. Did she talk to him about his suggestion uh, that people drink disinfectants or use UV light?
1: Uh, My understanding is that she did not talk to him. But immediately after he said that, at that fateful... Um, April press conference, she kind of walked through the doors and just almost gasped. And she told uh, another White House aide, Olivia Troy, I cannot believe what just happened. I mean, I think that was when she kind of saw everything unraveling and knew that she was going to be forever associated with these sorts of comments. You know, this is, she, Dr. Deborah Burks had spent her career um, trying to, you know, prevent the spread of AIDS. You know, going all over Africa to work with governments to try to get AIDS under control. I mean, a lot of the work she has done has been considered heroic. And here she is sitting, you know, stone faced at this White House briefing where the president talks about injecting bleach to stop the virus. It was just an incredible turn of events for someone of her career.
0: No, Olivia Troy was a member of, uh, of Pence's task force. Didn't Trump lose patience with Pence's task force? Oh, yeah, he used to
1: call it all sorts of expletives. I mean, he was furious that there was a forum for um, doctors to be able to, to riff and stuff. I mean, when, he would, when President Trump would come to the task force, He wanted the focus to be on the messaging. Who is going to be on Fox News any given day? How can we talk up how many masks and ventilators that he has procured for New York? He just wanted all the focus of these task force meetings to be on, you know, the good news that they could give to the public. And the problem was that, you know, Fauci would often walk into these task force meetings and say, well, geez, I'm hearing on the ground that there's no gowns in Denver, that the, uh, you know, the situation's completely out of control in New Orleans. You know, Fauci was trying to give people the real, you know, the straight talk. And Trump didn't want to hear any of that. So he really got mad. And at one point, he even wanted to disband the task force until he was told that that would make things even worse in the public's eye.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. With uh, Damien Paletta who is co-author with Yasmin Abu Talib of nightmare scenario inside the trump administration's response to the pandemic that changed history published by Harper Collins now um, do you know how sick the president was when he was admitted to Walter Reed w-
1: this was a yeah this was a huge focus of our reporting we were kind of obsessed with that weekend I mean just as a person watching him walk across the South Lawn that day with the mask on, I felt like was one of the more iconic, you know, images of modern American history. We didn't know if we would ever see him again. So, you know, even though this happened like in October 1st, I think is when he went to the hospital and then the public quickly kind of moved on to the final weeks of the election, Yasmin and I doubled back and did a tremendous amount of reporting on what took place that weekend when he, he became sick. Well, and Wasn't we he was, much
0: sicker than his, his doctors and his advisors oh, were reporting yeah, at the time? I mean, he was, Why were he, they lying?
1: They were lying because they wanted, for, for two reasons. One, they wanted to give the false impression that he was fine, that he was, you know, this like incredibly healthy uh, 74-year-old man who just couldn't be stopped. Who was but they were also, who was also
0: he, medically obese? Yeah, medically obese, you know, never
1: exercised, and, uh, you know, uh, the. Whole, I mean, the, the, listen, Leonard, our reporting was that the guy almost died. He was put on oxygen twice, he was given miracle drugs that weren't uh, available to most Amer- any Americans at the time, and, you know, miraculously, and thankfully those drugs saved his life, but he b- became very close, I mean, they told him inside the White House, you can either walk to that, ho- that uh, helicopter and be taken to the hospital, or if we wait much longer, you're going to be wheeled out of here on a gurney for the whole world to see. I mean, he was, his situation was deteriorating rapidly. And he, you know, it was, thank goodness his life was saved. But it was a very, very dangerous moment for the country and for him.
0: Haven't, and many, thought, haven't many of his advisors said that they learned he was sick from his Twitter feed?
1: Yeah, not, even his, not just his advisors, like people like Anthony Fauci. I mean, the people, they were not sharing information because it was really a situation where only his close family members and the doctor were allowed to know what was going on. Even the morning... Um, th- th- so it was Thursday night at like 1 a.m., he tweeted that he was sick. Then he was still trying to tell people on Friday morning that he was going to have a normal day in the office, and they were planning meetings for him and stuff like that. But sure enough, you know, he was there he was lying in his bed Friday morning with an oxygen mask strapped to his face. So they, just, they were really doing everything they could to not be transparent. Mark Meadows wasn't telling AIDS what was happening. Unfortunately, I mean, this was kind of lost in the shuffle. But there was a huge outbreak of COVID at the White House at that time. You know, many, many people were becoming sick, and they were all starting to resent Meadows for not telling them what they should be doing, whether they should be tested, you know, whether they should be wearing masks and stuff. So everyone just kind of went home and refused to come back into the office. I mean, it was a really chaotic, you know, several days at the White House. And some people never forgave Meadows um, after that.
0: As you pointed out, that was early October last year. No drug had been approved to treat people who had COVID-19. Um, so uh, what, what did they do? Did, uh, didn't they call FDA Commissioner Steve Hahn and say, yeah. we need you to approve an experimental drug immediately?
1: Yeah, it was, the whole thing was so strange. They, they called, actually, Alex Azar at HHS and said, we need you to approve this monoclonal antibody, um, for use and they wouldn't but tell did him they who say it was. who it was for? Well, they wouldn't tell him. And you know uh, it, and then they called Steve Hahn, the head of the Food and Drug Administration, who, let's be honest, they had been trying to rip his arms off for weeks because they wanted him to approve the vaccine that had not been adequately tested yet. And said so they wanted him to approve the use of this thing too, and they wouldn't tell him who it was for. And when Hahn finally learned that this was for the president of the United States, he he was like, You have to you know I can't just approve Uh, experimental drug for the most powerful person on the planet like you have to give me all the information Um, when they when they finally approved it and he was given the drug like I said and and at the time actually they gave him a bunch of drugs at once which is very unusual Um, they gave him steroids and the monoclonal antibody and other things too and that kind of snapped him right back to life and that's why he wanted to be discharged so quickly because not only was he recovering but he was kind of jacked up on steroids and felt much better too And that's when um, Bob Redfield, who was the head of the CDC, called Sean Conley, the president's doctor, and said you cannot discharge this guy from the hospital. You know, he's all jacked up on steroids and he might feel fine now, but he could have a relapse tomorrow and then that would be the end of it. I mean, that happened with a lot of people. With COVID, they would start to feel better and then all of a sudden they would just begin this downward spiral. And so Redfield pleaded with Conley, you know, you cannot discharge him. And Conley told him, I agree, he needs to stay here, but the president's insisting that he leave, and there's nothing I can do. And then the president returned, and, you know, we thought it was a, a big moment for the country um, when the president departed and, you know, walked across the South Lawn off the helicopter and then walked up those steps, you know, the, to the back of the White House with his mask on, everyone was kind of watching to see whether he was going to say, you know, okay, I get it, this, this virus is the real deal. Um, we should take it seriously, like it almost killed me. But instead he took off his mask and said, you know, we cannot let this defeat us. We can't let this change our lives. And when he said those words, Bob Redfield's heart sank because he knew the country, many, many people in the country were gonna listen to exactly what the president said and think that this, if the president could beat this virus, they could too.
0: But they didn't and give him hydroxychloroquine, which he had been promoting for months. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I know. And which and no many UV people have taken. Yeah, or bleach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The things that he had been kind of promoting when his life depended on it, he wanted nothing to do with. But, you know, if you, sadly, if you look at the, the kind of charts of um, new cases and deaths, that point, October 5th, I think, is when he's discharged. That's what began the terrifying third wave of the virus. And, you know, we went from, you know, 40 or 50,000 cases a day to I think on election day, there was maybe 100,000 cases a day. And soon after that, I think they reached 400,000 cases a day of, of, of uh, COVID-19. And it all, that third wave all sort of began around that time.
0: There was a lot of conjecturing in the media at the time about whether we could trust Meadows and Trump's Dr. Sean Connolly when they said that he was getting better, but he did get better.
1: Yeah, he got better i mean it is it it, you know thank goodness like he was the target group you know mid-70s and obese he you know thousands and thousands of people just like him had been killed by this virus some of the some of them you know within hours like they really never had a chance some of them would go into the hospital quickly they're in the coma and then they would pass away and well they wouldn't be given
0: the drugs and the treatment that he was given
1: absolutely not no they wouldn't even they wouldn't they wouldn't know who to call their family members members wouldn't know who to call now this drug is available more openly thank goodness and many people you know can get access to it but you know it's still not that easy and you should still shouldn't assume that if you get sick and go to the hospital you're going to be okay because there's a miracle drug so you know, like I said, it was it was amazing that he was able to get this drug and that it worked with his system, but it was not a sure thing. And absolutely, Conley and Meadows were giving very um, com- conflicting accounts of what was going on with the president. And I think that made things even worse inside the White House because they felt like, you know, it was open season on lying. You know, the desperation was in full force with just a few weeks to go before um, the American public cast their votes.
0: Well, Trump emerged quite defiant and triumphant and said, don't let it dominate your life, don't let it scare you. But did his medical advisors hope that as a result of his experience, he might start to advise social distancing and mask wearing?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of them more than hoped. Some of them even prayed that this was going to be the turning point. In fact, his medical advisors, when Trump was in the hospital, started consulting with each other about a new kind of public messaging campaign that they were going to launch when the president got back. They were sure that this was going to be a moment when they could, you know, start telling people more directly, because they they believed they would have the president's support that you have to wear masks, especially going into the fall. You have to wear masks and you have to do social distancing or we're never going to get rid of this virus. I mean, Fauci and Redfield and Steve Hahn and, and Deborah Burks just knew that this virus was going to pick up momentum as the weather got colder and people went inside. And they were right. But when the president emerged, as you said, defiantly and said, don't let this dominate your life, that just undercut everything that they were planning. And unfortunately, everything went kind of in the wrong direction after that.
0: Was there a plan to brief or to swear in Vice President Pence if things really deteriorated?
1: No, you know, this is something that I really pressed on in my reporting, you know, working with Yasmin was, well, if you you, know, you had the President of the United States with an oxygen mask put on his face twice in the span of like 24 hours, surely they have, and he's, you know, in his mid-70s and overweight and has all the health risks of someone who could die from this, surely there had to be an advanced plan to swear in Pence, I mean, even if you went into a coma you'd have to have the vice president sworn in and th- they were so secretive about the president's condition that they didn't even tell pence how bad things had gotten and so there was no discussion with pence's staff about you know the just the logistics of swearing pence in on a moment's notice and so i think that just shows how close we came to a full-blown constitutional crisis i mean obviously even if the president you know, um, didn't die, but was in a coma or just was kind of coughing uncontrollably for several hours, you'd need someone, you know, with the nuclear football. And the fact that they didn't even have that, you know, uh, under consideration, I think just shows you how chaotic the thing was at the White House at the time.
0: There are conflicting reports about the role that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, played in this story, wasn't he very angry at one point about mask delays, saying that we'd all be dead by June? Yes. Uh, although he told the media that everything will be OK.
1: Yes. You know, Jared Kushner is another one who we found to be kind of three dimensional in our reporting. I mean, on the one hand, he did he did kind of break down some of the bureaucratic um, roadblocks and, and help get and procure things like masks and ventilators because he quite frankly just you know didn't think that a lot of the guardrails that were in place, they th- he thought that it was slowing things down and he was right. But at the same time, um, he, would, he would go on public messaging, he would say things like, you know, we took this back from the doctors, this is all gonna, we'll be rock. I think he said we'll be rocking by June, this was in April. He, he gave people the sense that everything was gonna be okay, when clearly it wasn't. And, and he did say at one point, you know, you blinking moron, we'll all be dead by June if you don't get more masks. That's a conversation that you know didn't become public until our book was published much later.
0: Didn't he create a, a shadow task force, although there was already a real task force?
1: <laughs> yes. And you know, you mentioned earlier that the president hated the Pence's task force. Well they created another task force that was led by Jared Kushner. And that task force actually you know did some good things and did some bad things. On the one hand, it created a ton of confusion about who was in charge. When you had Kushner and some of his, you know, unofficial advisors who were emailing companies from Gmail accounts and their personal, you know, email accounts, asking for, you know, very personal questions about mask um, procurement. I think that created a lot of confusion. But at the same time. Um, Kushner was heavily involved in Operation Warp Speed and, you know, the, the push to develop a vaccine. And the fact that he did that kind of out of the public eye and away from some of the politics, I think, made it much easier for that process to succeed because there wasn't a lot of pushing and pulling and, you know, backstabbing involved in that. So. I think, you know, he does deserve some credit for that, although he definitely complicated a lot of other things.
0: Well, there were protections in place to prevent the government from overpaying for products or supplies and to try to ensure that companies didn't receive unfair advantages. But wasn't Kushner accused of overpaying for products?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, in some cases, I think there were some ventilators that they paid more than twice what the things normally would have cost. You know, what made things so much harder was The president didn't want the federal government to kind of own responsibility for things like testing and masks. He wanted the states to be the ones that were to be blamed for this. So you had the situation where states were bidding against each other you know, for their hospitals to be able to get masks and that was driving the price of everything up. And so when the U.S. stockpile, you know, when, when governors were calling saying, you know, we need masks or whatever from the U.S. stockpile, Kushner was very protective and he was saying things like, well, that's our stockpile, you need to go get your own stuff. And so when they did make this push, there was a lot, it was a really focused because Cuomo, the Governor Cuomo at the time and Jared Kushner were in, you know, communication I think more than once a day. And when Cuomo said we need all these ventilators, Kushner was kind of doing everything he could just to get all all the ventilators sent to um, New York, even though a lot of other states needed them. And so that drove up the price as well.
0: And then he disappeared.
1: And then he just disappeared. Yeah, I mean, I think when things really started unraveling after George Floyd's murder on Memorial Day, Kushner really kind of left the whole COVID response process, except for, you know, playing a role in the vaccine development. And he started focusing a lot on the stuff that he wanted to do related to Middle Eastern relations, relations in the Middle East. And so, yeah, that's when the White House response unraveled even more is when Kushner wasn't there. You know, everyone was kind of vying for the president's attention. And um, unfortunately, like I said, in the second half of 2020, the response just got so much worse.
0: This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Damian Paletta, co-author with Yasmin Abutaleb of Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History. It's Published by Harper Collins, uh, one of the uh, things that seems to have been slightly resolved recently was the whole issue of, of Pfizer's testing of, of its vaccine. Um, didn't Pfizer change its study design? Well,
1: you know it's interesting. So there were three there were three vaccines. So previously, the, the fastest a vaccine had been developed was for mumps, and it had taken four years. But here we had three vaccines that made it through the process in a year, which was you know amazing, and we we're so lucky because it helped us um, you know get more than like 150 million people vaccinated. But Pfizer did things a little bit differently. They didn't rely uh, like the other companies did on Operation Warp Speed. They did a lot of this on their own. And also at the time, the FDA created some kind of new protections to ensure that the process seemed very walled off from politics. Because at the time, President Trump and Chief of Staff Mark Meadows were breathing down the FDA's neck because they wanted this whole thing approved before the election. So the FDA, you know, went above and beyond to try to make sure that people could feel like the vaccine had been tested properly. And that slowed the process down a little bit. Um, and actually pushed things back until a few days after the election, and that led Meadows in particular to go ballistic when he found out that things weren't going to be out on time. And he actually accused Pfizer of costing President Trump his reelection because you know of uh, just this data coming in a few days later than it was the White House had hoped.
0: Uh, when Trump signed off on Operation Warp Speed in May 2020, didn't he? say vaccines are too pie in the sky
1: yeah you know the president and his supporters like to say that he's responsible for all this and while it's true that he did create the task force and got you know the right people together to get it going he definitely wasn't um, a big believer in it initially he, he actually has kind of um, had kind of anti-vaccine you know traits in his past where he's you know suggested that vaccines can lead to autism and things like that and he hasn't been a big proponent of the vaccine since he's left the white house so you know while there were people and really smart people involved in the development of these vaccines through 2020 the president didn't really start believing until like later in the year when he felt like they were achievable that it was something that could really help and so you know like i said it was kushner and fauci and others that you know really leaned in hard to this with the companies and the fda and, you know, they deserve a tremendous amount of credit for getting it done.
0: You suggest that before the pandemic really hit the United States, Trump was looking unstoppable heading into the election. The economy yeah. was strong. He'd weathered the impeachment hearings and been acquitted. And when he got polling numbers that showed 80 percent of Republicans would favor a mask mandate if it meant that uh, we could reopen and resume some activities, he and Mark Meadows rejected that. Why? Why?
1: They were just so afraid of the base. And by the base, I mean, you know, the folks who show up at the president's rallies that he feed off of. It's still, you know, I'm still stumped by this, why he couldn't see data like that that showed that 80 percent of Republicans were fine with the mask mandate if it would lead to, you know, kind of a normal life on the other end. The president just refused to accept that. That Those numbers were true, he kind of felt like the people that he saw at the rallies, the people you know many of them would wear red hats and and- and were just kind of deathly afraid of the government you know intervening in their lives. he felt like those people he needed by his side on election day, and so he just didn't want to turn them away and unfortunately, that decision I think right there at that meeting that you mentioned could have you know led to the deaths of thousands and thousands of people because if there were people who were on board you know maybe the majority of americans were on board with the mask requirement if it would lead to getting rid of this thing sooner rather than later you know who knows what could could have happened if we all would have you know followed that path
0: you interviewed about 180 people yeah, many of them multiple times. And I suspect some of them told you stuff that they didn't want their names attached to.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, it's true. I mean, it was kind of a struggle for us. And as you can imagine, some of the stories were conflicting and some of the things were just not true. And so Yasmin and I did everything we could to um, you know, corroborate stories, to talk to other people who were in the room for certain meetings, and to really press people on on their memories. We felt like it was important— Um, for us to get this kind of version of history down fast because, you know, memories begin to fade. Many of the people involved in this process were kind of on the twilights of their careers. And so we thought it was really important for us to kind of pin them down and get as many details as we could. We felt, you know, quite frankly, that the American people deserved it because we knew, you know, this is our first book. Um, and sadly, our first book has a does not have a happy ending, but at the same time, it was a really important book. We feel like for people going forward so that they don't make the same mistakes that these folks did last year.
0: And some of them revealed some of the dirt <laughs> that uh, yeah. that you include. For example, Trump was apparently so enraged at uh, the, John Bolton his uh, former national security advisor, for writing a tell-all book that at one point he said, hopefully COVID takes out John?
1: Takes out John. I mean, can you imagine? And he wasn't kidding. Uh, You know, I just think that these people, when when they realized that we were writing a book about this and it wasn't just for a newspaper story or something that was going to go up on the Internet or on Twitter, they did let their guards down. I mean, I think they felt like this version of history needed to be told. And, and, but there was also, as you can expect, some people who felt like, well, if we had, you know, um, extracted some unflattering details of them, They were going to give us some unflattering details of someone else. So we had to be careful not to let our book turn into that kind of thing either. But at the same time, we felt like we needed to present these characters, all of them, warts and all, you know, their mistakes as well as some of their better decisions, because we want this to really reflect what we believe is one of the most consequential years in American history. Well,
0: we have just about a minute and a half left, but uh, I was wondering about uh, how serious Trump was when he suggested repatriating or sending quarantined Americans to Guantanamo obey.
1: So, you know, at the time, I, I couldn't believe it um, when the, the, my first source told me about that. But they said that the fact that he brought it up on two separate occasions means that he was deadly serious. And initially, he told people during a meeting in the Situation Room that instead of bringing people on cruise ships back to the U.S., we should send them to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, so that they could be off U.S. soil and their numbers would not count towards the total. <laughs> um, and this is where, you know, they were housing 40 suspected terrorist suspects. They kind of blew it off said, you know, whatever, he's just riffing, but then he brought it up a few days later in a meeting in the Oval Office, and that's when they knew that he was not joking around, the fact that he remembered it and brought it up again. And that's when his advisors kind of banded together and said, there's just no way we can do this, because it'll be a complete public relations nightmare if we have grandparents in their Bermuda shorts you know, photos of them uh, at Guantanamo Bay. So I think at that point, when we uncovered that in our reporting, we realized that anything's possible with these guys and we needed to do everything we could to to dig and dig and dig.
0: And we have to leave it there, unfortunately. My great thanks to Damian Paletta, who with Yasmin has written Nightmare Scenario Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History, published by HarperCollins. It's been an eye-opening conversation. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more, you can access our over 500 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at large.com If you'd like to write to me, my email address is Lopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support this station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution of whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give2wbai.org to or by calling 212. 212- 209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been severely challenged by this pandemic, and because of all of the economic instability, a lot of our longtime listeners have had to drop their support, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to, in this time of crisis, to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep Community radio in London, located at large, on the air weekdays from 1 to 2. Again, the way to do that is to call 212 209 2950 or to go online to give to wbai.org. We hope you do it right now. Become a sustaining member. What we call a BAI buddy is a particularly great way to support BAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time. And you can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution of any amount. Again, by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. To everyone who's already supporting the station in the name of London, Lopet at Large, at whatever, you, whatever level you're doing it, I thank you so much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when investigative journalist and regular contributor to our show, Bob Henley, will discuss recent developments in local news. We'll see you then.